Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. A third of students are less than happy about their university choice, new research by EY has revealed. The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centered higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY. This is The Guardian. And welcome to Save for Later, a podcast about internet culture and the tabs our brains can't close. I'm Michael Sun, and this week the podcast is also mostly about movies. From hackers to You've Got Mail to Catfish to my personal favourite, Unfriended. We are talking about the history of the internet on film with Alexi Teliopoulos. It is not accurate at all. It doesn't look like real hacking, but I think it's kind of informed our visual language of like what the text space looks like. And then I'm going to keep Alexi on to chat about this week's favourite genre of online writing, the Elvis movie takedown. You do see this scramble of who's going to have the most eviscerating, colourful review. We may not be the only podcast out there that discusses the internet, but joining us today, we have a special guest from the world's only podcast on the internet that dares to discuss cinema, one of Australia's foremost film scholars, if I do say so myself, host of the podcast, (laughs) Total Reboot, host of the Finding series, CV side. This is just one of my favourite people to talk movies with. (laughs) It's a known fact that Alexa Taliopoulos has seen every movie ever. Um, We have the big brain himself, Alexi. Hello and welcome. Michael, my darling, my angel, it is my pleasure to be joining you on the podcast today to discuss the intersection of cinema and the internet. You're very correct. We're finally reunited by the magic of podcasting. (laughs) So, Lexi, we've been wanting to do this episode for a while. Take us back. Do you recall the earliest incarnation of the internet on screen? Where did it all start? Well, for me, I'm trying to rack my brain and think about my actual first kind of ideas of what the internet was. And I really think it goes back to two movies that are both kind of like those iconic classics of internet movies now, which played a lot on cable when I was growing up. Mm. One of them is the Sandra Bullock thriller, The Net, where she Mm -hmm. famously orders a pizza from a website called (laughs) (laughs) pizza.net. Never forgot that my whole life. And weirdly, very prescient. I probably ordered minimum 300 pizzas in my life via the internet now. So it really shaped who I am, I guess. So in the net, Sandra Bullock is also a hacker. Mm -hmm. Is that right? 
To my memory, yes, it's been a long time yeah. since I've watched it too. I think it was the first time I understood the internet as being some kind of force, whether it be positive force or a negative force or something, but it was something to be wary of, that you can't just go on the internet and muck around. There is danger at stake there. Oh my God. Angela, I've accessed a system I shouldn't have. If someone gets a hold of that disc, they'd have an awful lot of power. And I think it was very much for kind of like our parents' generation rather than us, Michael, the idea of the internet being an unsafe place. And I think that film's influence was really wide because it was this blockbuster thriller. It was this kind of important movie with a movie star breaking out from it, Sandra Bullock, that it kind of sat in people's minds a lot. I think it gave people their first preconceived notion of what the internet was. And, of course, the Angelina Jolie, Johnny Lee Miller classic with Matthew Lillard, Hackers. Well, both these movies came out in 1995, which is unbelievably early days, right? Mm. Like, I feel like the internet didn't even really get invented in this current form until the late 80s. So, like, so we're talking the first decade of the internet itself. There's a little bit of, like, this moral panic around Mm. where the internet is seen as this, like, very, like, dangerous, dark space. Mm. There are people in, like, tiny sunglasses and, like, slicked back blonde (laughs) hair, like, just waiting around every corner to, like, get into your devices. But I feel like something with hackers especially like that movie made hacking look so cool mm. you have a zero bug attacking all login and all the way files run antivirus give me a systems display i rewatched the movie this morning for the first time in uh-huh. i reckon close to like 20 years and it really shocked me how sexy it is and yep. I am sitting here today going, <laughs> God, I wish I wanted to get some tiny glasses. Maybe I'll start wearing a rash top around the actual streets <laughs> of my hometown. Like, it's very sexy. It's very edgy, that movie. And weirdly, I think it holds up today because it's kind of our first visualization of what the internet actually is. Like, it is not accurate at all. It doesn't look like real hacking. But I think it's kind of informed our visual language of, like, what the tech space looks like in kind of this surreal realist sense and what cyberspace looks and feels like. I think it informed all of those decisions really early on, very much inspired by Tron from 1982, that kind of grid matrix look. And I think it's a look that's been continued throughout all of cinema history. It's like when you think of like a stereotypical image of the internet, that is literally just what you think about, is what it looks like in Hackers, Mm. like rows of like green lines and like letters on a black screen. Or a cityscape that is made out of hard drives and servers and little kind of flashing lights that run around the grid uh, as if there were cars moving across the information highway. Because, you know, with films, you have to find a way to visualise the story and the story elements. And if it was to be an honest portrayal of hacking, it would just be teenagers in front of the computer typing code in uh, into like MS-DOS or something. And that's not cinematic at all. There's no excitement. And I think it finds this weird balance that I find quite satisfying to go back to of visualizing the internet and in a way almost bringing the characters into that cyberspace world that it's invented. 
it also like glamorizes this idea of hackers. As you said, like most hackers probably are sitting in basements um, drinking like Mountain Dew after Mountain Dew. It's the platinum ideal of a hacker. It's the life <laughs> I want to live. When you give me the two options of trying to be hot like Angelina Jolie or drinking Mountain Dew, I might pick option B if I'm really honest. <laughs> And then I think that's, like, the initial wave of internet movies. And then we start to get, like, a little softer, right? It's, like, as, as more and more people begin to use the internet um, and the internet kind of gets taken out of the hands of just these, like, elite few and more into, like, personal home and domestic use, now that everyone's starting to use the internet, that's when we start to get, like, the real mainstream depictions. I'm talking, of course, about, like, a rom-com. Like, you've got mm-hmm. mail, um, the iconic... 1998 rom-com. What of your um, all-time favourite movies, Lexi? I adore this movie. I'm a big Nora Ephron fan. She might have been my first favourite director when I was a little kid, especially with You've Got Mail, which I have gone on the record many times saying it was one of my favourite movies growing up. I remember my maths teacher during, like, for some reason, wheeling the TV in, in probably year seven or eight, and putting this, like, TV in front of us and playing You've Got Mail, and then me bonding with him for the first time, going, this is one of my favourite movies, (laughs) so I love it so much. (laughs) I have to admit something to you, which is that I've never actually (laughs) seen this movie. That's okay. And I've only ever seen, like, clips of it, you know, like, playing on TV. It's like I kind of have an understanding of, like, the romance romance between Tom Hanks and his lover. Good Lord, you got to put some respect on my grind. You can't just call it <laughs> Tom Hanks' lover. She's one of the great movie stars of all time, for goodness sake, Michael. I'm terrible. I mean, it's the 90s. I was barely bored at this stage, Alexi. She has a smile that launched an entire subgenre of romantic comedy starring her and a guy <laughs> not as beautiful as her. But this is like the advent of kind of, you know, like online dating on film and, you know, like dedicated stands listeners of this podcast will know that I've had many a brush with just like early online, early internet, anonymous, potentially dangerous online dating. Like that was my shtick when I was 11 years old on the internet. So I feel like I actually should visit this movie. You should have been, you could have been talking to Shop Girl, aka Meg Ryan's screen name in that movie. <laughs> uh, I think this is a really great internet film. And I think it's one that really holds its place, especially as a point in history, like a period piece for the internet, because it's all about that communication. I think what hackers and the net don't really capture um, is that idea of the internet, the internet as this place for communication, this forum, if you will. And it is about these two people finding their true selves online, where they talk to each other, they can be more honest with each other online. It's based on an Ernst Lubitsch film called The Shop Around the Corner. Great 1940s era romantic comedy. So beautiful. Great Jimmy Stewart performance. And it kind of takes this classic rom-com structure of these two people unwittingly falling in love with each other and the kind of like sweetness around it, the Lubitsch touch, if you will, and brings it to the modern day. And I think Nora Ephron has this great skill because she was this... Her and her sister Delia Ephron wrote the screenplay and they really have this 
kind of contemporaneous about them where they were really on the cutting edge of like what is cool and what's happening and like the way that people use things to communicate. And I think that this is a bit of a breakthrough movie for the internet because it adds a lot of humanity to it because it is these two real people talking to each other. They have jobs in the real world that are in conflict with each other. He is a guy that owns, I don't even know if you'd know this concept, Michael, but Borders, like a huge conglomerate of a bookstore. Oh, I know what Borders is, don't worry. (laughs) They've all closed down now, so he would be the little guy if they were to remake the movie. And she owns just a small shop around a corner type bookstore. He's closing down her business. So they're in conflict there, but on the internet, they find each other anonymously and are able to find... They share the same passions. They share the same interests. But it also captures this idea of the internet being a small town. And it kind of takes New York, this huge city, the biggest city in the world, and makes it into this small town vibe where you're seeing people living their everyday lives. And it's captured in the way the internet is visualized in this movie, connecting people together. So I feel like the even the title of the film, right? Like you've got mail. Mm. I can definitely imagine the soundscape of that era where it's like pings and dings and dongs. I turn on my computer. There's this whole auditory sense to this movie. I go online. Welcome. Welcome. And my breath catches in my chest until I hear three little words. You've got mail. Well, you hear those, like, the famous buzzing sound of a modem booting up that I just remember so vividly, like, being a kid and hearing that like noise as the modem was booting up. And to when I hear it now, it sends me straight back to being, like, 11 years old, logging onto, like, RuneScape or something. Oh, yeah. And mucking it- around on, like, the IMDb chat rooms and the forums there. But I think like what You've Got Mail does the best, it uses those sounds, it uses those like things that we conjure up with the internet, those audible images, really. It feels like in this movie and maybe um, technology at that particular time, 1998, technology felt very human. Well, it's the first time technology really has to communicate with humans. They have to kind of give it some kind of face, give it some kind of voice, and give it some kind of way for people to understand what it's doing. I think the only way to do it is to humanize it just that little bit. But then it's like that movie then feels like an anomaly between its what came in immediately before it, which is like mm-hmm. this kind of very cyber world that's being created. And then what came immediately afterwards was, of course, the Y2K crisis, where you're immediately launched back into this mass hysteria, this fear and panic about what the internet was doing to us and could do to us. Of course, you then get the 1999 movie, The Matrix. Yeah. We had to say those words out loud on the podcast. We couldn't live without it. And we had to say it like that as well. The Matrix. (laughs) The Matrix. (laughs) The one, the only The Matrix. One of my favourite movies ever. A movie I'm obsessed with my whole life, I'd say. All I do on this podcast is just reveal my willful ignorance Mm. of, like, massive cultural properties. I just told you that I hadn't seen You've Got Mail. (laughs) I must confess that... (laughs) You're killing me here. (laughs) I must confess that the most of The Matrix that I've seen is that I watched the entirety of The Matrix Resurrections over the shoulder of a guy on the plane. Wow. (laughs) Um, Wow. I do, of course, know the overall, Mm. like, aesthetic, which has become so dominant in, like, popular culture. Why do you think this movie was so just became so massively influential on its take on the internet i think partly because it looks very very cool and it lands at this time in history where i feel like 
culture, film culture, and culture at wide is like on the precipice of this new age. 1999, the year 2000, the new millennium. I think just being alive at that point in history and conscious and being part of the culture you do feel this shift. Even if it's just a calendar-changing date, it does feel like you're on the precipice of the future. And I think The Matrix really gave this aesthetic to the world at that time. And The Matrix, the whole thing is about, like, do we live in a simulation? And all the philosophies that go back to, like, Plato and Aristotle and all those old Greek guys that people love to talk about when they get all heady about a movie – But what it really does, it like brought up all these philosophical questions for people that I think were very relevant to the time. And for a lot of people, they still are quite relevant. The Matrix's like greatest gift was like visualizing all of those things is the idea that we live in a simulation, what that could be, and the idea of the separation and the connectivity between humans and machines. You take the blue pill, the story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Let's fast forward another 10 years now. Now we're in the kind of like early 2010s era. Mm-hmm. I feel like maybe between 2000 and 2010, there was almost like a momentary lull. You know, mm. filmmakers were just, were just chilling out. They were making their like weird, dumb little movies. Um, <laughs> and, and they weren't thinking about the fear of the internet. <laughs> yeah. 2010 arrives. Catfish mm-hmm. changes the entire game, you know. Hey, Megan. Hi, how are you? Your voice is not at all what I expected. This is a documentary that so clearly distills all of the stranger danger. I mean, she must be pretty awesome, at least from Facebook. All of the fears of anonymity on the internet. We've been calling each other babe. Two weeks, maybe and puts it all in one docker. Also, one of your landmark internet movies, right? She told me about a chicken makes an egg every day. Did you know that? Megan. Oh, yeah, this is huge for me. This movie came out, like, just as I was finishing high school and embarking on going to film school. And this was very, very important. It was one that I'd been hearing about, like, on all these American podcasts and stuff. And when I finally was able to get my hands on it and watch it, it just completely blew me away because... At that time, I'm a teenager. I am using the internet to communicate every day. It's such a big part of my life. And it was the advent of social media at that time. I'd had Facebook for a few years. I'd had MySpace and not used it for a few years at this point. So I'm kind (laughs) of in the glut of figuring out how these things work. And you do meet people that you don't know in real life. And Catfish itself becomes part of our language. That term is from that documentary. They used to tank uh, cod from Alaska all the way to China. They'd keep them in vats in the ship. That in a very poignant scene towards the end where someone just talks about catfish and you're like, catfish being these fish that they put into these tanks and it kind of rustles all the other fish up and makes life a little bit more interesting or whatever the whatever the kind of way it comes from in this bizarre way. And there are those people who are catfish in life and they keep you on your toes. They keep you guessing, they keep you thinking, they keep you fresh. And now is known as having a false identity online to attract people in one way or another. And I think Catfish by uh, Justin Shulman just really captures the energy 
and the pace of what it feels like to be uh, falling down those online rabbit holes as well. So to me, it's always been the great internet movie because it has this investigative heart, but it also has this idea of how we do communicate with each other online. I have definitely been catfished and also I have definitely lightly catfished myself. Good Lord. I feel like, you know, there was this era of lawlessness. Mm. There was this notion where it's like, you can be anyone on the internet. How cool. And now it's like, oh, you can be anyone on the internet. Like, this is really bad. Um, Mm. And I also think Catfish is maybe one of the first movies to really critically examine social media, Mm. it really takes quite a critical view at these sites, which at that time, I feel like not many people were actually viewing particularly critically because it's almost like the early days of socials. Straight after that, only a Mm. month after Catfish, then you get one of my favourite films, The Social Network. Yeah. People want to go on the internet and check out their friends, so why not build a website that offers that friends, pictures, profiles. I'm talking about taking the entire social experience of college and putting it online. The site got 2,200 hits within two hours. Both these movies kind of kick off almost this mode of filmmaking, which is all about the dangers of like social networking. Mm. So, I mean, the end of the social network is literally Mark Zuckerberg harassing his mm. ex-girlfriend on Facebook. <laughs> Obviously, the site that he built. Yeah. I think you're so right about that. The social network, I think, is... I really do consider it to be, like, the 21st century's answer to Citizen Kane because it takes so much (laughs) of that structure. It's about, like, this huge tycoon that uses everything to his own advantage. I really think that they have a lot in common. Do you see any of your code on Facebook? Mark, did I use any of your code? You stole our whole goddamn idea. Fellas, if you guys were the inventors of Facebook, you'd have invented Facebook. And I would say that is his Citizen Kane, David Fincher. Forget about Mank. It's not (laughs) Mank. It's the social network. He made it when he didn't mean to. Baby, I've forgotten about Mank. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) God, I didn't think it would happen, but people did forget about Mank, unfortunately. (laughs) But we've almost talked about throughout this conversation of how the internet has been portrayed in film, but I think a lot of it is this idea of capitalism and it being the new market, it being the new idea of capitalism. And like, You've Got Mail is a movie about capitalism. You can't watch it and not go, this is a capitalist movie because, or it's at least a movie about capitalists, maybe not a capitalist movie, because it's about like a bigger business taking over a small business. And little do they know that in a few years' time, it's the internet is going to swallow up both businesses. And maybe, maybe, maybe it's the independent Meg Ryan store that could pop up back again to serve the niche outside of the internet. Well, I think this point about capitalism is really fascinating because obviously it's something that's like interlinked with the internet. You can't consider them separately. And if the social network was almost a capitalist parable, Mm. um, within a few years' time after that, then you're getting movies where capitalism has well and truly like taken a vice grip on our protagonist in the future. A movie like Her, for example, Mm. in 2013, like Spike Jonze's Her, is set in this like super stylized, ultra capitalistic future where the entirety of like what is meant to be LA has just become gentrified Mm. into this like one extremely unified, slick, high class, high, high rise landscape. And then you get this protagonist who's suffering from this particular bout of loneliness in the face of this very structured capitalistic society and then turning to the internet as what he thinks is an antidote Mm. to that. So basically, in every moment I'm evolving, just like you. That's really weird. 
Is that weird? Do you think I'm weird? <laughs> kind of. Why? Well, you seem like a person, but you're just a voice in a computer. I can understand how the limited perspective of an unartificial mind would perceive it that way. You'll get used to it. <laughs> when in reality, like, maybe it's not all it's hyped up to be. You also then, of course, get a movie like Ex Machina in 2014, Alex Garland's film, again, plays into these notions of just the grotesqueries mm. of capitalism. You get this, like, ultra, ultra slimy, extremely hot, unfortunately, rich guy played <laughs> by Oscar Isaac, <laughs> who's mostly shirtless in this mm. movie. He's like a tech oligarch. Mm. He's devoted, like, so much money into making, essentially, the perfect fembot mm. to do his bidding. Why don't we start with you telling me something about yourself? Well, you already know my name. And you can see that I'm a machine. Would you like to know how old I am? Sure. I'm one. One what? I think as we move into the mid-2010s, you do get this, like, critical stylized view mm -hmm. of capitalism's effect on the internet. And I think both of those movies, like, that is the deep thematic issue of them, that there is, like, this capitalism driving these things. But then they tell, like, the human scale story of them. And especially her, I think, is a really great example of that, where it is this tender movie about building this unique and new relationship, where he's building this relationship with the virtual AI assistant in his phone, and they fall in love. And the visualization of that is so much like the idea of the, an, a long-distance relationship where your most intimate life is spent looking and staring at your phone as if you are to fall in love with the actual object yourself itself and where you hold that object gently because you're like, oh, this is my link to my love and that's all it is. I think it's such like a specific thing that it's commentating on that is so warped to think about because I remember around the time it came out I was in a very short-lived long-distance relationship and at that time watching the movie go like what the hell how has this guy figured this shit out I couldn't figure it out because I'd be going to my home and just like hold my phone gently and stuff so bizarre and I almost wish I didn't say it on the podcast <laughs> <laughs> no I feel like if if this podcast is one thing mm. it's a safe space for <laughs> extremely intimate vulnerable maybe even embarrassing confessions that we wouldn't yeah. admit anywhere else. Well, that's what the internet is, of course. It's your most embarrassing thoughts aired publicly. <laughs> um, I mean, to some, like, being publicly embarrassed is more than just a drama, a melodrama, right? It's, in fact, some would say a horror movie, which is just an incredibly cheesy segue for me to talk about the rise of the internet horror movie. I think the first one I can really think of in my memory is the iconic, famous movie, Un- friended um which personally i would say what what the matrix did for the internet in in the year 1999 unfriended did in the year 2014 mm -hmm. for the uninitiated unfriended is a movie about like a group of friends who are on a skype call and then this ghostly supernatural presence begins killing them off one by one in this skype call what is it it says I'm not supposed to tell you what it says. Oh, come on, Adam. Don't do this to us. <laughs> what, what sounds like quite a ridiculous premise, but is actually 
unbelievably scary. Mm. Like, I remember watching this in the cinema with a group of friends, and we were the only ones in the cinema. And at one point, one of my friends got so scared that she had to turn around in her seat and put her earphones on and listen to a Big Sean song on repeat. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Because she was so horrified at the prospect of, like, someone killing her off on Skype. Yeah. I think it's it's such... I really like the Unfriended movies. There's a sequel Mm. from a few years later called Dark Web that might even be superior to the original Unfriended. I think that these horror films or even like this idea of these screen life movies where it Mm -hmm. is films entirely set on a computer screen as we visualize them, as we see them, the cursor going around and clicking things. I think they kind of come on the back of the found footage horror boom that was kicked off by like paranormal activity in a greater sense, but it really does start earlier with like the Blair Witch Project, but it kind of, of evolves and evolves. Paranormal activity is this huge movie. And then we have these other found footage films. And I think it kind of captures this idea that also I feel is intrinsically linked to the internet with the internet dangers, these idea of, like snuff films, like so much of my early days on the internet was seeing like crazy, mucked up, effed up stuff that I probably should never have seen. Like stuff like the, I was, should I say the words out loud? But like the pain Olympics, I won't describe what they are. Two girls, one cup, all of these things that are like forbidden images that you are witness to if you're like a, a bizarre little internet user of that era. And I think those kind of screen life movies take that idea of snuff and found footage and then bring them to like this internet shape. Stuff like Cam as well was a really good kind of like internet screen lifey hybridized horror movie. And then a few years later, we had this movie Searching with John Cho, which is actually directed by a guy who was like a visual artist for Google, who would kind of like invent the way that the menus and stuff worked. Um, And that is a movie that is completely screen life and it's a tech thriller about a child who has been kidnapped, his child, and him trying to find them using the internet set entirely on the screen surface of his laptop. And it's a really wonderful movie that uses the language that we see, the visual language that we have for the internet and brings it to life in a very specific way uh, that only a guy that like worked at Google and invented that language could really do. You mentioned the sequel to Unfriended as well in there, Unfriended Dark Web, which is a movie that I will never forget watching and I think it's one of the best of its screen life genre Mm. but there's one particular scene in there that I think about so often where a guy gets killed because someone calls a SWAT team to his house and and this is a known phenomenon um, in the gaming community swatting someone swats him and then hacks into his computer to play the sound of a gun cocking so the SWAT team will break in and shoot him just get on the ground right now get on the damn ground which to me is this like absolutely insane manifestation of the fears of the internet going beyond just what people can do to you. It's beyond just like individual people on the internet who are scary. It's the internet itself as it's like uncontrollable, amorphous presence Mm. where it's not just like a ghost who's like killing off these people one by one now, like it was in the original Unfriended movie. Mm. It's like 
technology being used in this unstoppable, impenetrable sense. I think watching that scene, I got this almost sinking feeling, as do the characters in the movie, where they're powerless to stop this murder from happening. Because, like, try as they might, they're unable to actually stop this sound from playing. They're unable to actually warn their friend. And to me, that feels like a metaphor for just our sheer powerlessness Mm. in the face of the behemoth that is the internet and all its, like, intricate tentacles into the world. Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's weird that we've come right back around. Like we started talking about the net and then where we are with internet movies now is this idea of like screen life movies and the horror films coming out of it. It's such an interesting circle that somewhere in the middle there was a romantic comedy and then we're right back where the internet (laughs) is even scarier than it was when Sandra Bullock had her identity stolen. It's even scarier than when Sandra Bullock ordered pizza from (laughs) pizza.net. Alexi, thank you so much for journeying through the extremely complex networks of the World Wide Web on the silver screen. But as I am alone this week, would you kindly stick around for me? Yes, don't jack me out. Keep me in. I'm sticking around for one more segment. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. A third of students are less than happy about their university choice, new research by EY has revealed. The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centred higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY. Okay, Lexi, as promised, the break has been and gone, and yet you are still here. Thank you for your everlasting service to this podcast. It is time for us to talk about another movie directed by a controversial Australian filmmaker, Baz Luhrmann. Well... Sort of. Like, to be clear, neither you or I have actually seen this movie, but (laughs) it is, of course, the biopic Elvis. In that moment, I watched that skinny boy transform into a superhero. In the last few days, it's also absolutely taken off on film Twitter um, as a movie everyone seems to love to hate. Um, After a very long standing ovation at Cannes, it then ended up getting this deluge um, of just (laughs) the worst, scathing, unbelievably funny reviews just ripping into it. Um, And it's kind of become like the main character of the internet over the past week. What all that? The wiggle! The what? Them girls won't see you wiggle. Move, man! Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. I'm a big Elvis fan my whole life. Uh, I used to kind of do an Elvis impression when I used to have to like sing the national anthem when I was a little boy in school, but then became extremely embarrassed about it and have never sung publicly ever again. You are the first person I've ever met who's like, 
a publicly avowed Elvis stand, former mm-hmm. or present. Like just the image of baby Alexi gyrating his hips, you know, like getting a little footloose in front of the entire mm-hmm. school audience. It gets me going. Yeah, I'm so sorry, but that's true. That's a real visual image. What have you heard about this movie, Elvis, the biopic? Well, I've been following it for quite some time. The first thing I heard was Tom Hanks struck with coronavirus <laughs> during the making of Elvis. Baz Luhrmann started COVID-19. Like, there's no two ways about it. <laughs> um, but I've been following it because I think there's something interesting in it. I think, you know, of course, Baz Luhrmann is a very ostentatious, bombastic filmmaker who makes big, bold choices. Often, I don't agree with them. Sometimes, I do. And I am really interested. I think he is a great choice to make an Elvis movie because Elvis is that. He's all flash. He's all flair. He is both the high and the low of art and class. And I think it is like an interesting choice to make this movie. But I just want to give you a smattering, a little taste of some of these reviews, which went fully ballistic. David Ehrlich, uh, (laughs) another very controversial figure in the film scene. Mm -hmm. He's the IndieWire reviewer. Um, He described it as a deliciously awful biopic. He also compared it to Bohemian Rhapsody at 4,000 miles per hour. He calls it sadistically monotonous. Um, He calls Baz Luhrmann an irrepressible maximalist. And then he calls the movie the most visually anarchic Hollywood film since the Wachowski's 2008 movie Speed Racer. Um, These are all selling points to me. Speed Racer, crazy, beautiful movie. Richard Lawson from Vanity Fair calls it toweringly noisy and ceaselessly moving, exhausting and irksome. Nicholas Barber from the BBC says it's a hyperactive sensory overload um, and then describes Tom Hanks um, as, imagine a fairy tale goblin played by Mike Myers or a version of the penguin that Tim Burton deemed too far over the top for Batman Returns. Like, this movie is, is... Baz Luhrmann times mm. 1,000 million billion. This movie's like speaking my language from what they're talking about. Like, Absolutely. yeah, Mike Myers-esque. I'm in, <laughs> dude. This is my stuff. Do you have a favourite thing that you've seen about this movie? Tell me what you've chanced upon on the internet. Well, there is this one, like, there's this idea of, of Mike Myers coming up quite a lot in all of these reviews. In Ehrlich's review, he describes uh, <laughs> Tom Hanks as Kentucky Fried Gold member. <laughs> now, I don't know nothing about music, but I could see in that girl's eyes. He was a taste of forbidden fruit. <laughs> oh, my God. have eaten him alive. And to me, this is like huge selling points. I think, you know, movies should be crazy. If it was just another boring biopic about Elvis where it's just like, okay, he looks like Elvis, he sounds like Elvis, he sings like Elvis. We've already got like two or three of those. There's one with Kurt Russell directed by John Carpenter from the 1970s. Great movie. But, you know, that's a pretty straight biopic. There's a Jonathan Rhys Myers one that I saw on TV like probably 15 years ago. And, you know, that's nice. He looks heaps like Elvis, but it should be that we should get experimental, crazy visual manifestations of, you know, Baz Luhrmann and Elvis's sick nightmares. That's what we want to see in movies. This is a crazy movie on all levels. And it also reminds me of like some of the other um, recent 
flops of cinema, of contemporary mm. cinema history, where a movie is just so um, is just so memorably awful that it becomes like the internet's main character for a day. The most recent one. I'm thinking Morbius, obviously. Yeah, I've not seen Morbius and I (laughs) hope I never do. But there's always those films that I think their life cycle into a cult feature is sped up by the internet. And Cats is a great example of that, Mm. where it was started as like a weird curiosity and within days, I reckon it became a cult film. And I wonder if like these films will have like a lasting impact in that way where we will be going, oh, it's a cult film in like five or six years in time or Cats, Morbius, and maybe even this Elvis biopic will be forgotten. Who knows? Yeah, I think it's like, I mean, back in the day, you had to wait years, decades for Mm -hmm. a bad movie to truly reach that level. Like The Room or something just took so long, bubbling under and like underground communities, more and more people slowly discovering organically until you have like cinemas full of people throwing popcorn at the screen. But a movie like this, it's like when when this movie premieres in Australian cinemas, it's already going to have hordes of people just going there for the sheer like shock value um, of like what they've seen. The spectacle of it all. The spectacle of it all. Exactly. Um, and I think something that's really feeding into that spectacle is the language in in which much of this like film criticism now occurs nowadays. Um, and Alexi, both of us are or have dabbled in the great field of film criticism <laughs> in our lives. Yes, it's true. Let the record show we have dabbled <laughs> in the dark arts. Do we feel like criticism itself is kind of being shaped? by these instances of virality. Do we think that, like, some critics are truly just writing their reviews with the notion of virality in mind? I think that's a really good point. I think that it's hard to say yes or no, but you do see this scramble of who's going to have the most eviscerating, colourful review around whatever is to be the predetermined spectacle, if you will, at that time. Like, I remember there was all these people falling over each other to write the Dirty Grandpa review that would be the (laughs) most exciting and talk about De Niro doing all these grotesque stuff in Dirty Grandpa. And it's an awful movie. I'm disgusted by it because I think it's a nasty movie. But then when I watched it, I'm like, people had so much fun tearing this apart. But I feel like often it can be like a disservice to review to the film itself. I think this is maybe the one thing in life that I'm not over, overly or overtly cynical about. Where, <laughs> but I think I'm coming from a perspective where I'm like, criticism as a job is not particularly fun. Um, mm. It's like, obviously, you have moments where you're like, wow, like I, like I love my job. I love writing about movies, blah, blah, blah. Yes. But I feel like the actual opportunities you have to fully go hog wild and just go mm. all out and like fully just focus on entertaining your reader. Those opportunities are very limited. Um, and I really appreciate when critics are able to fully abandon any kind of like respectability or any kind of like even like ethical rules of reviewing and just <laughs> trash a movie um, for no other reason than because it's entertaining to do so, especially when, it, when it's a movie that's on a scale like Elvis. God, I'll tell you, I'll never forget the first time I had to give like a truly negative review. Mm. Um, It was for the movie Mother. And I had really liked Darren Aronofsky's movie up until that point. It was just one that I just really did not like. It did not connect with me. And I did not like it. And I had to review it on TV for the ABC. 
and I got so stressed, my nose started bleeding moments before I was meant to roll on camera. <laughs> and so you could watch, if you could track it down, the me, the review of me reviewing Mother, you can see like a pile of like bloody tissues oh my on my God. lap because I thought the shot was cropped. But you can see them there <laughs> because I was like fully freaked out about having to give a negative review. Look, you should be so lucky that because this was on ABC TV, there were definitely no like hardcore no Twitter Aronofsky heads <laughs> just like going back to find this and instantly <laughs> cancelling you um, for this review. That was my big fear was that he would find out about it and he would get upset with me or something. (laughs) Alexi, before you go, I've kept you long enough. I know this for a fact, but I'm going to ask you for one more favour. I'm going to push the friendship um, one final time. Will you give our listeners, a recommendation before you leave. What is your top of the list this week? What are you watching, consuming, loving? Well, there's a new film that is finally, it's landed on Netflix. People can watch it. It is called Triple R. R, R, R. It's an Indian film. It's an action film. It's a buddy comedy. It's a romantic comedy. It's a musical. It is several other genres, but it is one of the best experiences I've ever had in the cinema because it was just this absolute blend of all of these things I couldn't believe were together. But it is such a rip-roaring time. It is pure entertainment that I think everyone should see. It's called Triple R. And I can't stop watching it. It's on the background all the time while I'm working at home now. My top of the list this week is also a movie. It's a movie that I'm recommending because by the time this episode comes out, I think you might only have like a few more chances to watch it in cinemas. Alexa, you've watched this too. It's called Petite Maman. Oh, I love it. Love this movie. It's a movie by Celine Siama, who also made Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Um, and it's this really beautiful 70-minute French fairy tale, essentially, about a young girl who ventures into the woods and meets her identical twin, um, who may or may not be... Who she seems it's just, it's just this mm. like very soft almost Ghibli-esque um, yes movie great way to describe about it. like family and motherhood and love mm-hmm. and it's just it's it's very heartwarming Petite Maman and do not Google translate the title because you might spoil the movie for yourself <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, you can leave us a review, but only if you call us, much like Elvis, toweringly noisy and ceaselessly moving. This podcast was produced by Miles Herbert and Joe Coning, who also handcrafted the music. Exec producers are Steph Harmon and Miles Magnoni. I'll catch you next week. A third of students are less than happy about their university choice, new research by EY has revealed. The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centred higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. 
Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.